want you back. If you're outside, come on in. We're going to shut the doors. Please join us. Thank you. All right. Good morning. Thank you, Marvin. Thank you all for being here. My name is Carl Kester. I am a proud NAATP board member and the individual with the great honor of being the chair of NAATP's Quality Assurance Initiative Committee. Many of the committee members, most of the committee members are NAATP board members. We have a couple of members outside of that. So great work being done. Uh, this is a leadership conference. And as I listened to Marvin last night and this morning, I am reminded of something that I heard General Norman Schwarzkopf say in the mid-90s. I was newly sober and going to work and trying to learn about leadership, and there are lots of books about leadership. And there was a speaker series that uh, featured accomplished speakers from our society, uh, the general leading that list. And he talked about a conversation he had early on with a mentor, and that mentor said, when placed in command, take charge. And you have done that, and we are grateful for that. Nice work, Marvin. One of the probably, I don't think one of, the most important thing Marvin has done has acquired talent. And if you haven't met the members of the NAATP executive team, I mean the people that are working with and for NAATP, you need to meet them. We have, we have a workforce that is accomplishing great things, and I think all of us have been, certainly in today's society, been in a location or seen speakers deliver uh, an impactful talk. But what happens after that, right? Some of us in recovery refer to that as the five minutes before and the five minutes after the meeting. What happens day to day? And our team delivers, and, and you'll see that in the quantity of the work and the quality of the work. Our role here is to begin to move from the inspirational and the battlefield topics to the things that will make us better. And as we move into the day-to-day -day work, I would first feel the need to point out to you that when we discuss outcomes, that this is not a marketing workshop. And as a leadership group, we understand the value of marketing. We understand the quality uh, of clinical care. We understand housekeeping. We understand payroll. We have to understand all those things in the business of treatment. And they are interdependent. And you can't focus on one area to the detriment of another. So as we get in and we look at what does outcomes mean? Does it mean the commitment that you guarantee a cure at 30 days? How do you measure trudging the road to happy destiny? What, it, what is our goal? What are we going to measure and how are we going to do it? So you go from this high-minded, let's take the field and save the world, to the details. So there's a risk of this session not meeting the threshold of excitement. So when the team was coming together and we said, okay, we may not meet expectations for this one, it may be disappointment. There was a moment of silence and then everybody once said, let's get Carl. <laughs> right? And I didn't take that as an insult because what we do at our core is we go to work and we build and we get in. And I had the good fortune of starting in our organization cleaning toilets. So when I say I value human resources and I value housekeeping, I don't know how many of you, but if you're working in a clinical setting that has detox, people come in and they have diarrhea and they vomit. 
and they are not really interested in which PhD is going to lead them through which cognitive behavioral therapy at that time. The person that comes in and says, it's going to be all right, let me clean that for you, that's where we start to build trust and make a difference. So am I equating the outcome work to housekeeping? You bet I am, because it's going to take a commitment, and it's going to take work on a day-to-day -day basis to get this done. One example that I think of of this work, I'm born and raised in the Seattle area, and we've had lots of businesses do very well nationally and globally out of that arena and, and in my time that I've been able to see. And one I've studied since the very beginning of going out into the world was Nordstrom. And here was this glamorous thing. My family couldn't afford to go at that time. My father was newly sober, and so Nordstrom was up here. And then once you figured out what customer service was, Nordstrom was up here. And it was this glamorous, special thing. And then I got a little older, and people were old enough to go work there. You know what wasn't glamorous? Staying up for 24 hours, counting shoes in the back room. They work hard at Nordstrom. They take inventory. As I got older, I got the opportunity to actually interface with some of the Nordstrom family. And I got to sit with Blake and say, what makes the difference? What is different about Nordstrom than the other agencies, the other retail stores? He says, we take inventory so that our store managers can decide what's selling, and we sell different things in different stores. What moves in Seattle is not what moves in Los Angeles. Now, this makes perfect sense now, but this is 25 years ago. This is before software, let alone online purchase and delivery. So I can't even begin to understand the, how the, the, the impact that technology has had on retail, but I do understand the impact it's had on what we do. So when we talk about the business of treatment, we are business, we need to take inventory. And that fits with the personal connection that some of us feel, that word fits. But it also goes back to the inventory reference in the big book. A shop has to take inventory. How are we doing? I would bet that as many of the people in this room, there's probably more people in this room that measure your click-to-call ratio, your call-to-visit call ratio, than you do what happens to your patients at three months and six months. It's expensive, and it's not revenue-producing. I understand that. So on one level, we do talk about the money. So the, one of the neat things that I got as the past board chair is to see the evolution of this going back to before we started the project three years ago. And in today's society of all these headlines coming in, it was, well, what can we do? Can we combine, can we get all the data that's out there that shows that what we do is effective? Most of this data was born out of cater studies in the late 80s and early 90s. Can we begin to pull this together? And so how can we do that? And, and how can we not promise a cure but commit to the fact that people will get well? And how can we pull this together? And then there were, there were marketing teams that said, this is what we want to say. This is what we want to be sure we don't say. And all this was going on. And at the same time, we, then we started to commit to, we as a board and as an association, let's build a professional team to give us the infrastructure we need to move this field forward. And so we were very fortunate. Right behind Marvin came Jessica. And this was right in her wheelhouse. And, and we took on outcomes. And we took on moving past the CARF survey of somebody at 60 and 90 days where you're satisfied with services and we did send a loved one, which I believe is very important information, to how are you doing? And what are your demographics? And where did you start from? And where are you going to end up? And at the end, if this is a lifetime clean and sober impacting and healing families, and here we have a productive member of community, and here we have staying out of the emergency room and staying out of jail, right? We know what the trajectory looks like. Let's begin to measure it. 
And so we don't have the silver bullet that everybody is gonna be able to tweet this afternoon and take back to your team and redirect patients. What we as an association have developed is a tool that fits into our quality assurance initiative that you can use to evaluate what you're doing. I am very familiar with this material and I believe it will be effective in working with third party payers. But even before we go to third party payers, don't we wanna know how what we plan to do, what we asked our teams to execute, how effective is it? Don't we embrace the fact that we're going to need to adjust our plans? Just as we have turnover of people and we're gonna have stars and we're gonna have the also rans, some of the things that everybody thought were gonna be great around the table aren't so great in reality. And so having the ability to measure that is gonna move us forward as individual organizations. And then collectively, maybe there are big projects we can work together. Maybe collectively, if we're all doing this, and again, our actions are louder than our words, we can change the world. Marvin is excellent on his feet. Performer, not just talker, performer. I've noticed in my 25 years in this industry, we have a lot of people great are great talkers. I think in our disease, many of us as a defense mechanism develop the gift of gab as a survival mechanism. And oftentimes people don't back those words up with actions or their actions are incongruent with their words. And so we are building an organization that speaks with their actions. And this tool is gonna enable us to do that. So as we look at the way to measure the road to happy destiny, and we say, how can we do this and what are we looking at? The answer quite simply is to get started. And the team up here has enabled us to do that. Jessica Swan came to us as an independent contractor and started working with many of our agencies that were doing this work. And then eight of them committed to being pilots in this project. And we looked at making sure we had a verifiable tool that we could go forward with. And at that point, we partnered with the Omni Institute, and it's not that easy, and, and it's amazing what you can condense three years later, how fast things go. <laughs> but what we got is a scientific team that is professional beyond reproach, not only to validate the tool, but to work with those eight pilot sites to make sure, and actually when we started, it was nine pilot sites, and one of them wasn't gonna work for a pilot. And I, like everybody else, when Marvin first came aboard, I was worried about today. I knew we could gather information, but what would the message be? What would the expectation of the message be? And what would the message be? Because I knew, just like you know, we were not gonna produce 96% of people are cured. So what are we going to do? And what happened was nothing short of intervention, divine intervention, a miracle if you will. What happened was science won the day. In a pilot project, what you do is you put something out there to test it to see how it works and how you can improve it. And in doing so, we have a validated tool that programs can take their inventory. So if we wanna to continue to stand the test of time, we need to make sure that our actions meet our words and this team and this work has enabled to do that. So to get us started, I'm gonna turn it over to Jessica and she's gonna walk us down the path. Jessica. Oh my goodness, good morning, hello. It's so exciting to be here on this day. Um, this has been a three year uh, day in waiting. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really honored to be here and be with you all. Um, 
So Carl went through a little bit of who we are. I'll just re-mention that uh, I am Jessica Swan. I am an independent contractor hired as the outcomes manager for NAATP. And um, I am so excited to say that we have collected data um, on a lot of people across the United States in a cross-site um, analysis that is ongoing right now. The data analysis is ongoing, but we co completed our data collection in April. And, um, if, if you've ever done research, you know that's a big deal. <laughs> if you've ever worked in this field, which you all have, you know how hard it is to herd cats and um, get people in order and get people to respond and do the work. And I am so grateful for the people that have participated in this study, for the participants themselves uh, signing informed consent to do this, um, to NAATP, the outcomes um, it's now called the Research and Education Committee uh, for, and it used to be the Outcomes Committee. All the people that did the work over the years to get this going, Dr. Norm Hoffman for uh, providing us with an original tool that we um, then adjusted for this pilot. Just so many people uh, across the board, and Holland will talk a little bit more about that. Holland Hirsch is our senior researcher um, and uh, led uh, us along the path here with Katie Gelman, who is our research director, uh, from, both from Omni. Um, we have two other researchers, Mary Parks and um, Natalie Wheeler, who also worked on this project. And of course, we have a ton of IT people that ran a dashboard for us and built a dashboard and ran it for us. Um, and the list goes on and on. Of course, the NAATP staff, and uh, I'm just so grateful for all of you. Um, one thing I wanted to mention is this beautiful little piece of literature that's on your chair is for you, obviously. Um, and it's called the, uh, it's a little clunky, but it is very descriptive. And um, Marvin came up with this title, and I think it's wonderful, The Addiction Treatment Provider Implementation Guide to Standardize Outcomes Measurement also known as a toolkit, outcomes toolkit. <laughs> um, but it, this is our uh, preliminary work. And we wanted to provide this to you today so that you can see what the membership is going to get this year. Um, you're going to actually get a toolkit that provides you with the process to implement this in your own centers. Okay, um, so it's very exciting work, and we're we're really happy to be here. Um, Carl already mentioned, you know, this is three years in the making. We started in 2015. Um, we're going to be wrapping this pilot up this year and providing this toolkit this year for everybody in our membership. Um, the purpose of the pilot was to create and test uh, uh, the instrument and provide a process for you. And you're going to keep hearing that from us. This is about a process of data collection. Um, and we wanted you to be able to learn, know how to do this for yourselves, and standardize it across the United States. That it's kind of weird that that doesn't exist. Right? I mean, we do a lot of amazing work with a lot of evidence-based work and uh, scientifically researched work or studied work, and yet we don't have this. And we know treatment works for a lot of people and heals families and saves lives. And I, we know so much, and we don't have this part. So this is actually a really huge deal, what's happened here with NAATP and their foresight to get this done. Of course, they wanted it done you know, as soon as I was hired. Um, <laughs> and we worked hard to get that, that going. But that didn't happen. But we are here today, and we are happy to say that it is almost done. Um, 
So why did we want to do this? Carl alluded to a lot of this. Marv has talked about this already, um, the Quality Assurance Initiative. So if you haven't or you weren't at the last session or the session last night, um, do take a look in your program, page 66. Uh, in the program provides the quality assurance initiative um, components and outcomes is one of those components. It's uh, letter F, so that's, that's us, letter F, outcomes, measures, guideline F1, tracking patient outcomes. And so what we know is that so many of you do this on your own, but again, like I said, it's not standardized. And so how could that be? Like how could one center be doing it one way and another doing it another? Or little companies that have started to come up that aren't little anymore are doing it for many of you. Yet we don't have a standardized way of looking at this. And so that was really our process and our, and our hope here. Um, one thing that I thought, you know, I, my mind has been going crazy because there's just been so much good content already in this short period, something that Bobby said uh, and Carl I and Marv have kind of had this thread of what I think is now how it works, right? So if you're in a 12-step program, you know about how it works. And um, I, I believe that this is what we're providing. That's our part. This is how it works. And you have to be the ones to implement this, to say to the payer, to the mom that has the dying son, this is how it works. And we know this is how it works, and we know because it was studied, and we know because it was tested. And we know now, not just because I saw a lot of people saved, because I personally have seen a lot of people saved from the depths of hell. <laughs> Um, not just because of that, but because scientifically we know that this works. So, um, you know, good business practice is having standards, right? So this is having a standard. You have a standard for how to make the bed and housekeeping and clean the toilet. You have a standard for how to do outcomes now. Measuring what we do is how it works. That is what we're up to. Okay, so here comes Holland. Holland's gonna give you what you're really interested in, hopefully. Again, not a silver bullet and a magic answer, but um, this is Holland Hirsch, our senior researcher for our Outcomes Pilot Program. Thank you, Jessica. I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to have partnered with the National Association on this project and to be here today to share with you some of the things that we've learned so far. And there is much more for us to learn, and so we'll talk about that all today. I want to start by contextualizing this work within the broader field of outcomes in addiction treatment. Where are we now? Where are we going? This is a pilot, and it's not the beginning and it's not the end. When NAATP set out to do this work, there were three primary goals. The first is to take a step forward in defining common outcomes measures for the field. So we know that things like abstinence and whole health, life satisfaction, mental health, employment, are really critical indicators of recovery. But we don't know what those key metrics are in the same way that we might know that hypertension is under control because of a certain blood pressure reading or because cancer is in remission because of a certain white blood cell count. And so the National Association wanted to embark on this work to start defining and establishing more understanding of that standard. 
The second aim that we've talked about a lot already is to cultivate best practices and procedures for conducting outcomes research in substance use treatment centers across, this, across the country, for having that more common and collaborative way of doing this work. In the end, NAATP hoped to be able to demonstrate that common and collaborative data collection and research is possible, and to develop a toolkit with easy to follow processes and procedures that are available to all of you with standardized tools and surveys that you can put into place in your own centers. And then finally, of course, through this process, we collected data and we'll be able to use those data to look at the relationships between treatment and short and long-term outcomes like abstinence for patients, including other key indicators like aftercare utilized, mental health, et cetera. I also want to contextualize this work within um, a broader field of research. This is not the only work that has been done in this area, and of course there's a long history of um, doing outcomes research in the field. For example, the Harvard Cohort Study, a 75-year study on healthy aging that included a subset of patients with alcoholism. There is also the Drug Abuse Treatment Outcome Study, or DATOS study, funded by NIDA. And that was preceded by two other studies in the field, looking at patients with over 10,000 admissions to um, community-based treatment programs and outcomes over time. And then finally, another large research study in this area that I'm sure you're all aware of is the CATER study, the largest independent evaluation service of substance use treatment programs in the United States, different from DATOS because it was not federally funded, or part of a government agency. And that work focused on 75,000 adults and 11,000 adolescents receiving both, both residential and outpatient treatment services across the United States, resulting in innumerable, innumerable presentations, scholarly articles, and congressional briefings. And many additional subsets of studies came out of that research looking at the relationship between treatment and outcomes. So the outcomes pilot program exists within a large field of research, but it, we also distinguish it because it's recent. Data collection needs to be ongoing and it needs to be current. The field is ever changing and we need to stay up to date. The National Association needs to continue this work and to continue data collection and continue research to understand what is most effective in treatment and how can the best outcomes be achieved for patients. And then second, of course, this project was really focused not only on the research and advancing understanding in the field, but on testing processes and procedures so that membership can use those lessons learned moving forward to collect outcomes data in your own programs. Ah, great. <laughs> um, so as both Jessica and Carl mentioned, Omni Institute started working with the National Association in 2015 on this project, but the work was long ongoing before that. There was a committee within the association working to develop the process and the survey tools that were utilized as part of the program. When Omni Institute joined the research team, we also were part of the process of onboarding the eight participating pilot sites who ultimately contributed to this research study. Ashley, Addiction Recovery Resources, Karen, Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, New Directions for Women, Seabrook, The Heart of Recovery, Sundown M Ranch, Tully Hill. 
And all of these organizations contributed data across all time points, which we'll talk about what data collection looked like in a minute. And it, I, I want to make a note about the organizations participating. They really ranged in, in size and capacity for doing this work. So some had very well-established outcomes research programs. They knew how to do this work before. Some were doing outcomes research for the first time, where smaller programs had less capacity. And so we were really able to draw on lessons learned from a wide variety of individual, or individual treatment centers who can contribute to the knowledge base and to the toolkit that will ultimately be provided to all of you. I also want to let you know where we are today, and this has been alluded to already. We just completed data collection a couple of weeks ago in April. Um, we will be working over the summer on a rigorous eva uh, evaluation and testing research questions to result in a final report that will be available, of course, to the participating sites and to the National Association to tell more about that data story. How does treatment affect outcomes? And we're going to be sharing some preliminary data today, and we're going to be talking about lessons learned from the process. Okay, so across the eight sites, 740 patients across the country were enrolled in the pilot study. Approximately 50 to 125 patients per site, depending on the size of the site and the length of the treatment program. And all of the patients enrolled in the study were receiving residential treatment services. Data were collected from study participants at seven time points at intake to treatment, a short survey at discharge, and at one month, three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months from the date of intake. And I just want to pause there to make the point that we focused on standardizing when data would be collected regardless of length of stay in treatment, which of course we also measured, and the length of the programs that were participating in the pilot. The survey tools that were utilized for data collection were developed by Dr. Norman Hoffman, who worked on the Cater study and is an internationally recognized expert in the area of assessment and outcome evaluation for behavioral health treatment programs. So they're very well informed by a long history of, of research and work in this area. The content of the surveys included things, of course, like demographics and substance use history, but also other key factors like support from friends and family, mental health issues, legal issues, treatment utilization, ratings of treatment, continued care, legal issues, et cetera. For this to be a collaborative effort, we needed to put in place processes for data collection to be common across sites that were all across the country. And so we developed an online data collection tool that allowed the survey data collection to happen in a standardized way in the same place. So all of data were entered into this system. It could be accessed anywhere that facilities had an internet connection. Um, and then data were not only collected in the same way, but input in the same way and standardized. The data collection system also gave participating pilot sites access to their data in real time so that they were able to monitor things like the number of patients who had enrolled in the study, when folks needed to be discharged, when follow-ups needed to happen, and access to their data in real time so that they could look at outcomes ongoing as the process unfolded. Another important piece of this work that I want to talk about and that was very critical to the National Association 
is that it was conducted with the utmost ethical standards. Any research that is conducted with human subjects needs to be reviewed and approved by an institutional review board, or IRB, and this study was. An IRB determines that research, design, and materials meets an ethical standard for working with human participants. An added layer of protection for this particular study that we obtained is a certificate of confidentiality. It's administered by the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and it, it adds an added layer of protection for research participants and protects against any compulsory legal demands for identifying information or data. We had no reason to suspect that data would be requested for any reason, but this piece adds that added layer of security for any participants providing data as part of the study that it will not be released for any reason. The other piece I want to touch on, which we've talked about a little bit already, is what we mean when we say outcomes research versus marketing. Certainly outcomes research can inform marketing, but when we're talking about this project and this program, we're talking just about examination of patient status after treatment and using those data and that information to inform program learning. When we're talking about marketing, it's more about getting the word about, out about your program, increasing admissions. And like I said, those two, pro those two processes can inform one another, but w when we talk about outcomes research, we're more okay with the fact that we might learn some good things and we might learn some areas for improvement, and that's, that's what we're trying to do, um, so that we can use those data to, to change the program to do better for patients. Okay, well, in just a minute, I'm going to share some data with you, but before that, I want to talk a little bit about what we've learned in this process, and a little bit more about what will be included in the toolkit. Um, this lessons learned was informed both by the research team and also by the participating pilot sites who were able to provide input on what worked well in their program, what didn't work so well, what do we need to provide for membership as part of that toolkit offering. So first, what worked? Um, we collected outcome data in a common way across eight pilot sites. Um, what enabled us to do this was, of course, the online data collection system that I've already talked about, and also standardized training that was offered to all participating pilot sites. And this is important, not just in collaborative research, but in outcomes research that you would do in your own centers, really making sure that the staff who are responsible for data collection are informed about what the process is and what they will be asking of patients, not just while they are in treatment, but after they leave treatment. What does follow-up data collection look like? Why is it important that they participate? Why is it important to the organization and organizational learning? We also learned a lot about incentives for this process. Lots of research has indicated that offering incentives to study participants can increase follow-up rates. We're going to talk a little bit more about follow-up rates in a minute. It's really critical to this work. We had, a, we had a variety of options that were chosen in this pilot. Some sites offered incentives, some sites didn't. In some instances, that really helped increase follow-up rates. In other instances, it was other factors that contributed. And the toolkit will cover some of those best practices for increasing um, follow-up. And then finally, you know, the big success of all of this is that it happened. Data were collected we're learning, and this work is important, and it's important to continue, and so that's a very big success. Um, of course, there were, was lots that could be improved, um, and so I just want to touch on a few of those 
those items. We've talked a little bit about consistency and collaboration. There was a lot of feedback from sites that there could have been even more. <laughs> for example, collecting data at follow or for follow-up once patients have left treatment external to the organization so that there's even more uniformity in how um, data are collected and how um, participants are talked to about their follow-up outcomes. I talked about incentives in the success session in successes, I want to talk a little bit now about the way that the study is explained to patients and really providing that wraparound understanding about why we're doing this research. That's an area where we could have improved and we could have provided even more training to sites about um, knowing what, what was entailed when patients were signing up to participate in this work. And then finally, I want to make the point that this work takes investment and it takes commitment and it takes time and resources. And we really saw that throughout the course of this pilot program. Collecting data for a year from a large body of participants takes time from staff. It takes organizational commitment from leadership. It takes putting processes into place to manage things like staff turnover for when a research coordinator moves on to another position. How are we going to manage knowledge transfer? How are we going to manage processes so that the data collection continues? All of these things and more will be included in the toolkit, and we're excited to be able to share those lessons with you. So now, like I said, I'm going to share a little bit of data. I'm going to share with you some information about who was included in the study. Like I said, analysis is really, is really starting now. The data are hot off the presses, and we're excited to share more in the future. So this study included data from participants, the majority of whom were 25 to 34 years old, though there was a range in the age all the way from 18 to over 65 years old, with a fairly even distribution across different age categories. The majority of participants identified as male, a little bit more than half of participants enrolled in the study were male. 92% of the participant population was white. The majority of participants had full-time employment at the time that they enrolled in the study. The majority of participants had used alcohol in the 30 days prior to treatment. The other top used substances in the 30 days prior to treatment were marijuana, benzodiazepines, prescription opioids, cocaine, and heroin. I'll take questions in a minute, thank you. I also wanna share a little bit in, of information about follow-up rates. This is so critical to doing this work. And there was quite a range in terms of success across pilot sites in terms of who they were able to reach ongoing after the point that they had entered into the, into the pilot program. The, the issue with follow-up data collection and the problem with attrition from a study like this is that when we aren't able to collect data at follow-up, it of course limits the validity of the data and the generalizability of the data or how useful it is to informing the program. And of course there might be differences between people who remain enrolled in the study and people who drop out. So those are really critical factors to to um, understand about why this piece is so important, and I'm sure you all understand that as well. If we don't reach people after they've left treatment, we don't know what happened to them. 
we're going to be using this as a learning to inform what we can do better moving forward. Some pilot sites, of course, as you can see, did very well over the course of the study. Other sites had capacity to build. There's research on how to do this research. So um, there is data that suggests that to reach hard-to-use substance-using populations, a minimum of 10 contacts are required, and even more with a harder-to-reach population than that. A response rate or a follow-up rate of somewhere in the 70 to 85% range would be considered excellent. As you move into that 60 to 70% range, that's when you start to feel okay, but not 100% confident of, your, of what your data can tell you. We do this kind of work with not just the National Association, but individual treatment providers. It's very challenging to reach a high response rate. Even if you don't hit that 60% rate, you can still learn a lot about your program, where you need to improve, and what is working well. Um, but I want to provide this as context for what you might want to be shooting for as you move into doing this work on your own. So with that said, I think we're going to move into panel questions in just a minute. On your chair, like Jessica mentioned, is an outline of the toolkit. It's in draft form. We are soliciting feedback on what you would like to see included when the final toolkit comes out later this year. Please come talk to us after the presentation. Or in your conference application, there will be a survey, and there are specific questions related to the toolkit in the survey where you will be able to provide extensive feedback about what you would like to see. So please use those two places as an opportunity for providing your input about how we can make this the most useful to you. Um, and then finally, somewhat unrelated to the outcomes pilot program, but I did want to mention that Omni is also working with the National Association on the annual salary survey. And if you have had not the opportunity to complete it yet, Please see myself or Peter Thomas, and um, we would like to get you the information that you need to do that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So what we're going to do is, is I have some draft questions here for the panel. Those of you with individual questions, we're going to invite you to speak with NAATP staff after the session or the staff from, staff from Omni. What I'd also like to do, if there are pilot uh, members, uh, organizational members in the audience, would you please stand? I know I saw Kathy and Scott there, but any of you that participated as a pilot, uh, John? Uh, there we go. Right, thank you. Thank you very much. But I'm sure that they will be happy to share. Much of the specific data is going to go back to them to use as, as they wish. That's their uh, small reward, if you will, for taking the leadership position that they did. And then as we move to, to build the, the toolkit and get that out as a, as a membership benefit. So Jessica, somebody that came in at the beginning of this, and really it was uh, our first, born out of the conversation to differentiate quality providers from those providers that, that are fly-by-night, if you will, and, and seeing this all the way through and visiting the providers and, and the whole process, what do you believe the biggest takeaway for NAATP to be? Okay, so I guess the first thing I would say, uh, and Holland mentioned this, is that we can do it. That is a big deal. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's not sexy. It doesn't 
doesn't get on John Oliver. Uh, but you know what? We did it. That is the big takeaway, that, that a cross-site analysis um, can be done. Data collection across the United States in a study such as this could be done, and that this process can work and that this process can be provided to others. So, you know, I think that is huge and it's exciting to me, hopefully to some of you. Um, and, and second, you know, it's the standardization that is the, is the other takeaway. Um, it brings validity to what we do. Um, you know, I'm a broken record. I, I kind of already said that. It's, this is a big deal that what you do is validated that you can say how it works. Either of you from Omni might be able to answer this question. As you collaborated and worked with the eight different sites, what do you see, whether it's uniform or is there anything that stood out as the biggest opportunity to utilize the information for the providers? Sure, I can answer that. So I think there are a couple benefits from um, doing this collaborative pilot. First, uh, the diversity in sites that we had let us collect data across a number of different organizations that ranged in size, in their participant population, in the types of treatment programs that they offered. And each of those things help us to inform the toolkit to say, okay, you know, this was a challenge for this particular type of organization. And so we can build those lessons learned in. Um, secondly, we got to show that it's possible. So like Jessica and Holland were just saying, you know, this is a huge commitment and eight sites were able to do it for this whole period of time. And the lessons that we learned with them can really help us put that down on paper and give that to the association membership um, and really help any of you who are interested in doing that to do that well as well. All right, Jessica, I'll take this to you as you've been in all the conversations not necessarily in regards to dates, but that may be foreshadowing for our next question. What are, what are the next steps for NAATP in this project? Um, when I talked to Marvin about that, uh, you know, what, here's what I think I would say if I was asked what would the next steps be. He said, whoa, 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 first things first, first things first. And so I, I, I wanna say that to you all and, and, and to you, Carl, uh, in response is that, you know, it's first things first. It's really saying, what, what did we just do here? Um, and so we're gonna take some time to look at what has just happened a little bit more. Um, it's fresh, right? And so we, we need to take some, a little bit of time to make sure that what we provide to everybody is what we want to provide to everybody and that it, it, it does have the validity that we need it to have. So perfecting that process um, and uh, providing recommendations to you all, it's not a small task. It's a huge task and it's super important. It's part of the quality assurance initiative. And so that's really our next step is this data analysis process, um, uh, continuing to work with Omni to get the reporting out to you all about what uh, you need to do in order to implement this for yourself. So um, there's a lot of possibilities after that. So uh, you, there's all kinds of directions that we can go uh, with NAATP and continuing research. And um, we haven't really uh, bridged that yet because we wanna do this all first. Um, we wanna put the, the uh, right things in the right order. And because of that, we haven't made decisions about what the next research work will look like or if there's gonna be another pilot program. Um, you know, a long time ago when I first started, we had talked about doing an outpatient uh, pilot program 
there's all kinds of wonderful ideas, um, but there's nothing in stone as far as uh, next steps for that research. We really want to finish this work and make sure that we provide the nation with the best tools possible. Great. All right, let's let's talk as much as we can and as we come to the end of a, a three-year project about publishing the contents of this, uh, the timeline for that, and then in regards to the tool could it set itself, what our expectations might be. Sure. So we're working uh, on a plan for a publication. As Jessica just said, our priority has really been on getting the toolkit out. That will happen this year. Um, we are hard at work pulling that together. Um, as Holland, I think, mentioned in the beginning, um, this handout on your chair has the outline for that toolkit, and we would love your feedback on that based on what you've heard today and thoughts that you have and things that you really want to see in there. So that's our number one goal. Secondly, we're working on the evaluation report for the National Association. Um, so that will include both process and outcomes in terms of what we did here and what, what we learned and what we saw in the data. And then from there, I think we'll be talking about publication, whether it's from this data or from a next pilot effort. I think that remains to be seen, but that is our goal. Well, we're getting close to wrapping things up. Or do either of you have a final comment that you'd like to share with the group? Just thank you for, for engaging us in this process. This is really important work that you all are doing, and we, we have really appreciated the opportunity to partner with you on it. So this was found after, underneath the chair <laughs> on the first session. So you can come up to me. Jessica's going to give it to you, so I'm not accused of giving jewelry to women in another state by my wife. <laughs> it's also not the Oprah Winfrey show. You don't get a car, and you don't get a car. We're in an exciting place, folks. We have so much that we can share anecdotally, and so much we know about what we do and what we develop. I can't help but think, as I look at that data, that I was a 23-year-old that had had been, over the last six months, uh, the woman that she and I thought we were in love had changed the lock on her, locks on her doors and gone into therapy, that I'd lost my job, that I was put in quarantine in an emergency room for no immune system, and that a legal intervention got me into a treatment center. And there I learned about my disease, and at three months my parents accepted me back into their house. At six months I got back enrolled in college. And at a year, the old high school baseball coach came to my door and asked me to come help him with his program. And then things went on from there, marriage and children and career. That's not recorded anywhere. And as a guy from Washington standing in Colorado whose life was taken down by alcohol and marijuana, that's not in anybody's headlines today. So anecdotally, I share that story. And many of you, either because you've lived it or because you're a caring professional, have empathy. Many of you, because you've been in these rooms for a long time, know that to be true, both the decline of the disease and the trajectory of recovery. Now is our opportunity to quantify it and then to figure out a way to take that information and make ourselves better. And as we do that, we will attract the right-minded people in our society and we'll be engaged in a process of progress, not perfection. Thank you for your time and commitment to the field. Enjoy the rest of the conference. <laughs>